some plaintiff's attorneys become focused on the negotiation part of it without perhaps thoroughly analyzing their hand, uh, their case. This is Wisdom on Trial, impacting your life and law practice. I am glad to be here with uh, Steve Sawicki today and, uh, and talking to Steve. Steve, for those that do not know, Steve is a serious, serious mediator for uh, high-end cases uh, throughout Florida. And uh, Steve, you were one of the, uh, I think, the early adopters at becoming a mediator. Yes, yeah, started in uh, 1990. Okay. How many mediations do you think you've done? Uh Plus or minus around 5,500, somewhere okay. around there. That's 5,500 mediations. Do you still enjoy it? I do. I do. It, it, if we looked at a pie chart, what percentage of the days are good days when you're mediating? Uh, oh, maybe uh, three out of four are, are good days. And there are days where uh, you wonder really what happened or what, what was going on and try to figure that out. But uh, most days are, are good days as a mediator. Yeah. What got you into it? Like why, why mediation compared to, I know you were an active trial lawyer, tried a uh, uh, hundred cases. Why would you shift into something that is less adversarial? Well, it was actually quite by accident. I was um, involved with the asbestos litigation as a defense attorney, uh, representing one of the asbestos manufacturers and that effort uh, uh, the defense effort was consolidated so instead of using a dozen law firms in Florida for instance they consolidated the defense effort to four law firms so uh, all my cases were were um, pulled and sent to some lawyers around Florida and a couple years after that I got a call from the Johns Manville Trust uh, Johns Manville had filed bankruptcy. Yes. When they were sprung from bankruptcy, they created a Johns Manville Trust and I think a Johns Manville building product, something like that. So there was an ongoing entity that made money and they were required to fund the trust to handle the uh, ongoing uh, claims in litigation. So they wanted a national panel of mediators to mediate the Johns Manville Trust cases. I was asked to be a part of that um, panel. In order to do that in Florida at the time, it required me to be certified as a mediator. So I went through the certification, went out to Texas and did a two-day training program for the asbestos cases, came back to Florida, did two of the cases, and the program went bust. Okay. At the time, uh, the judges, this is 89, 90, 91, uh, the judges were picking the mediators. And uh, it turned out a lot of the judges in Central Florida were familiar with me because I tried cases. So they just started sending me cases. And so it was really quite by accident. And after a couple years, I was working full-time as a mediator. Any regrets about... Uh, shifting 100% to mediation and not having endless sleepless nights prepping for trial and all of the anxiety that comes with that. Is that a rhetoric question? <laughs> it is. It, it is. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, no regrets. It's been, a, it's been a 
28, 29 years of a, of a very rewarding and good career. After that many mediations, I just, I'll round it at 5,000. How do you keep the mediation from uh, becoming stale and rote and not just kind of like if I were to criticize a category of certain mediators, I feel like um, they're just running through the motions and it's it, it feels stagnant and lifeless and uh, uninspiring the process. How do you keep it fresh after that many? Well, I, um, I don't work every day. Uh, there are weeks when I have five mediations, but uh, I don't do two a day. I do just do one a day. Um, and also because I was both a contract and a torts lawyer and tried cases at both ends. I have a wide variety of cases. I mean, during the course of a week, it's it, it just a wide variety. So I'm not doing, uh, you know, the constant volume of the same kind of cases, seeing the same kind of people, dealing with the same kind of issues. So uh, fortunately, just every day is a new day with just different kinds of cases. I mean, I could give you examples of how different they are, but but they're just, you know, if the world was divided up into torts and contracts, those those two worlds are different. Yes. And even in torts, I know you run the gamut from a med mal brain injured baby case to um, a car crash, although it does seem like your practice has kind of uh, eliminated the lower end cases. Um, yes, I, I don't see what I would call a standard two-party auto case. Uh, I, I would say the most, most often I see the carriers that deal in those cases is in a multi-party situation or perhaps a bad faith situation. So, so if you weren't here and I was just talking to my partner about you, I would say uh, Steve priced his hourly rate so high that the only people that are using him are someone who have decided this dispute is worth a higher hourly rate than, and, and literally, um, it feels like I could be wrong, appreciably higher hourly rate than most of the... Uh, uh, everyday mediators, I know that's a may sound like an overstatement. It may not be. Uh, was that an intentional decision in terms of the hourly rate? In the mid '90s, I was doing over 300 cases a year, and I asked my secretary um, to track kind of the sweet spot for scheduling cases. So after some data collection, she came up with. 90% of the cases are scheduled three to eight or nine weeks out. And if you're busy three to nine weeks out, that to me necessarily, and I'm just by myself now, I'm not meeting with anybody or about this, but to me it meant that it probably was turning down business. So um, my first increase in, in my hourly rate came about as a way to control the calendar a little bit more. And it just turned out that there was a lot more to litigation than to party auto cases. 
So it just kept going from there. You know, uh, a mediator is probably a full-time mediator with maybe 1,000 or 1,200 hours a year, which would be part-time for most litigators. But so every time uh, uh, I reached 1,000 or 1,200 hours a year, I felt that the marketplace was giving me a green light to raise my rate. The misnomer, I think, about the high rate is that it only attracts high-end cases. It doesn't. It, it, it doesn't. As a personal example, um, I had a little spot on my face that the dermatologist says you need, it, you need to go to a specialist to get that burned out because it's cancerous. And to this day, I have no idea how much that cost. But when they said that, I said, I'm going. Yes. So I think that uh, what's happened in mediation is you've got what I would liken to kind of walk-up clinic things that are easily managed in Walgreens or CVS or by a general practitioner, a fracture or something like that. And so I would liken that to a lot of the volume that occurs in two-party auto cases, for instance, and similar matters. The next level would be someone that's a bit more of a specialist, but still limited in what he can do. And the third level would be a surgeon. I don't know that surgeons work every day, but when you need uh, surgery, for a lot of folks, the, the, the price is a secondary consideration. Yeah, you're not looking for a budget surgeon. You want a... You want someone who is worth a premium. Well, can do a surgery. Yes. So, so you wouldn't be going uh, the same place you got your flu shot. You probably would not be going there. So I think mediators, uh, we have a very mature culture in Florida for mediation. It's been going on since the mid-'80s. It's kind of evolved in the t- what I would call those three categories, not necessarily driven by price. It's driven more by reputation. Uh, my suspicion is that someone's going to listen to this uh, at some point in time and uh, wonder whether mediation is a profession that they might want to do. Um, I, I, the questions I had in my head were, which people shouldn't be doing mediation, just personality-wise or any other reasons-wise? They're not really wired for it even though they might desire the freedom and the flexibility in some ways, but they're just not wired for it, and which people kind of should consider it. Um, They may actually be designed more for mediation. Well, I think if you're mediating civil trial cases, then uh, one of the the things I think would be of benefit to a person embarking on a mediation would be some amount of experience actually trying cases and being familiar with what exactly goes on in the courtroom because let's face it the a case that's given to a media there's only two ways it ends right either ends in court or it ends on a deal so those mediators that have a, a clear grasp to be able to talk the talk so to speak with the participants and the attorneys involved can talk about evidence can talk about Witnesses can talk about perception, can talk about uh, trials with some amount of credibility. And it's hard to bluff your way through that and hard to do that unless you have actually done that. So 
my observation about the current, in 2019, the current state of affairs is that the supply of mediators, those desiring to do it, far exceeds the demand for okay. the product. Seems like it. And, and I think if you look at um, law firms and litigation in general, this would be anecdotal because I'm not a member of a law firm and you know don't, don't really know this for sure, but it seems like the hiring is for attrition rather than addition. So it might be that uh, litigation has somewhat plateaued in some areas, maybe not in all areas. And the institutions that get involved in litigation have been inundated for certainly the last 10 years with concepts of uh, pre-mediation and settlement meetings and conferences and and um, case management and um, cost containment and early interventions yes, and risk yeah. management. House counsel, I mean, house, yes. house counsel seems to be uh, more motivated to yes. settle a case than perhaps the um, outside counsel does on, on some occasions. So, um, uh, it, so I just, I don't know what to say some, that want, somebody wants to embark on the career because the barriers to entry appear to me pretty high. And those that, of us that got in early are just really lucky as we observe that <laughs> phenomenon going on because I'm sure there are uh, mediators or folks that want to be mediators that have the skill to do it but find themselves a little behind the curve in timing uh, to get any traction as a career. Yeah, I've I found definitely people that have uh, trial experience, they just, they're able to relate to the issues in a more precise way than someone who's just trying to talk resolution. Um, I wonder, I don't, I don't know if this is inappropriate to even say this, but I found that an area where I believe there's opportunity in the mediation field is some cases are more inclined to certain types of demographics in terms of the mediator, a, a Spanish-speaking client, mm -hmm. as an example, or sure. you know, where the difference of having someone who can not have to speak through a translator is significant. Um, in some sensitive cases, I found there can be an advantage to having a mediator who's the same sex as the plaintiff, like a a female mediator, softer with sometimes particularly sensitive cases. Does that make sense to you, or do you think I'm off base on that? Well, I don't know. The, the folks to ask that would be the folks that are picking mediators. And so from my perspective, I really don't know the whole backstory. Perhaps when I get selected as a mediator, I just, we just get a call and I show up where I'm told to go. It, it, I think it also, uh, for mediators, it really depends on what they want to get out of it because it's a second career. I mean, they've already had a career as a judge or as a trial attorney or, or an attorney, perhaps. And so are you interested in working every day? Are you okay working a couple of days a week? Is it just something you want to do in your second career life as opposed to being a trial attorney? And that, and that kind of can somewhat influence or dictate the kind of work you're you're interested in doing, or what you can, what can you go after? I don't know that there's any way to market your niche. 
uh, it may be uh, based upon a demographic or the example you pointed out, uh, someone that's bilingual might be able to market that as they do to the, as lawyers, right? Yes. Tell me, um, other than trial, what else has shaped your ability to be an effective mediator other than your experience as a trial lawyer? Any games, experience, training, anything like that? Well, this, uh, that's an interesting question. Um, my dad was, was a smart guy and somehow he figured out when I, he was putting me through college that I would get more out of the experience if he paid for about 75% of it. Okay. Than, than if he paid 100% of it. So all through college, I was uh, put in a situation where I had to work, uh, certainly during the summers, and um, I was uh, taking two majors, uh, mass communications and business at the time, so I was in class a lot. I was also on the tennis team, so I really didn't have time to take a job at the um, bookstore, you know, the local uh, McDonald's, but um, I started playing cards and poker and became um, proficient at poker. And I continued to play cards after college through law school and um, after I became an attorney and was involved in poker clubs and so forth. And it just seemed to me that uh, the better poker players, uh, first of all, understood the rules of the game. They understood, you know, what beats what, kind of, you know, what are your chances of getting an inside straight, yes. you know, just something about the game itself. And then, and then the second thing that uh, the better players seemed to be able to do was to assess the room. Who are they playing with? Are they playing with people that like to be in every hand? Are they playing with people with have this dramatic twitch when they're bluffing? Uh, do they, are they playing with people that um, know understand the game or they don't? So, so kind of assessing the room and who you're playing with is uh, something I believe very important in in uh, a mediation as well. And certainly understanding the game, I would analyze it. Uh, what's the word? Um, Compare it to, draw an analogy to, uh, being a trial attorney. Uh, so you understand what's at stake if they don't settle the case. You understand the rules of the game and evidence and so forth, and you understand the room. And the third thing is you have to appreciate the hand that you're dealt. I think it's probably a skill that's not shared by every poker player that I've ever been with. It really is, now that I'm hearing this perspective, I realize you're really saying, what's the hand that we're dealing with today? Yes, that's true. Yes, yes that's really good. Um, let me let me spitball some uh, mediation areas. And I hate to obsess in that area, but I really want to pick your brain there. Sure. W what is it that plaintiff's lawyers will start there they just don't get like they don't understand this seeing it's not everyone but just a large percentage they don't understand this about uh the process or they don't understand this about the defense or the insurance company what are the common things it's like you you feel like you're not understanding this from the plaintiff's attorney's perspective there are two big 
decisions they have to make. They have to evaluate their case, and then they make a decision about how they're going to negotiate a resolution of the case in a settlement, be it a mediation or just a discussion. So I think some some plaintiff's attorneys become um, focused on the negotiation part of it without perhaps thoroughly analyzing their hand, uh, their case. Because it's easy to negotiate or initiate a discussion for negotiation if you're sure that you're giving them a demand that they won't pay. That's it's pretty easy to do. It doesn't take doesn't take a lot of thought. You know, just pick a number of maybe a policy limit demand or some number that clearly which I don't criticize because um, the the process involves humans. So humans are driven by just basic primal instincts. Yes. Greed, fear, anger, grief, revenge. And so the, those are all, you know, driving their thinking. Fear that they'll uh, demand too little. Uh, greed that they want, they got clear liability, they want as much as they can get, even a premium. Um, dealing with a client that may have anger or revenge or grief. And also um, mistrust. Mistrust in defense attorneys, mistrust in insurance companies, cynicism in regard to the process. So they come in there with some baggage, but if they can somehow uh, wade through that and get to an honest evaluation of their case, an honest evaluation of their client and the evidence that they'll put on to support either a liability or their damages end, then they'll probably do better in their profession and do better in a mediation. Um, there's all kinds of books on negotiation, but I found that, um, I believe it was Getting the Yes. If you read Getting the Yes maybe three or four times, you get the idea that they're really sending a message to participants in negotiation that actually you'll make more money by being credible as opposed to always incredible. So I have found when you have certain insurance companies, and I'm not sure that there's much difference, you know, if, if everything is always 1500 regardless of whether or not it's a whiplash or an arm off, then the the plaintiffs become uh, complacent in their evaluation because they just cynically assume that whatever they're offering me, it isn't enough money. Uh, without really, so if from the defense side, if they were more credible in their evaluation and presenting to plaintiffs' attorneys their evaluation and and the reasoning behind the evaluation, I think you would you you would get to yes. At least that's the premise of the book. And from the plaintiffs' end, if they were credible in their demands, and I'll give you an example, um, often you'll see a lost wage claim that really has no has really has no support. I mean, somebody that hasn't filed tax returns or has uh, tax returns of a business that never made money. Um, in theory, uh, you may have a lost wage claim or a lost earning capacity claim, but practically, uh, is that anything you really can prove? 
uh, without uh, uh, you know a certain amount of cross-examination or scrutiny or dismantling of it. So uh, a credible approach to an evaluation, a realistic approach to negotiations is sometimes a challenge for a lot of the plaintiff's bar, but those that are able to do that probably are more successful at it. I, I think the fear that lawyers feel is if I go right to my evaluation, like it, like, I, and what I'm hearing from you is just recognizing that a, a pivotal piece to being a, effective in mediation is really done beforehand, which is really, truly, honestly, and objectively evaluating the case. So I'll set that sure. aside for a second. Sure. Now I've honestly and objectively evaluated the case. My fear is if I come out with my honest, objective evaluation, I don't really have anything to negotiate with. I've already come out with the evaluation stage and they always want to negotiate. Sure. Well, um, I call that the, um, the tug of war about who goes first. And there is always that trepidation about, because you, you can read a lot of negotiating, you know, how to's and they'll always say, well, let the other guy talk first. And then you react rather than go first into the unknown. So I don't think an, an evaluation approach necessarily means that you uh, start a negotiation with a number that you, you, they might take. You still can start with a number that you're confident that they won't accept. But it doesn't have to be a real big number yes. <laughs> that that wouldn't accept. So you can you can leave room. It, it I sometimes characterize it as second half. It, it, when we get to the second half, the mediation is more productive, even if it doesn't settle. The discussion is more productive rather than the um, you know the waiting through the safe house negotiations where the parties decide to exchange numbers that they know can't settle the case at either end. And they're just, again, fear of going first and giving up something that they don't have to give up till the other guy does it. Yeah, I've heard you talk about the three stages of negotiations before. Um, the first being uh, positional bargaining, and then you can share the rest. Well, um, it, positional bargaining is, is often um, uh, how mediation start or negotiations start, you know, safe house exchanging numbers that can't settle the case, trying to see what the temperature's like, what that, what that result brings. Sometimes uh, the parties will agree to accelerate the process to more of an evaluation. And then, uh, and then the third phase is just, is where it gets good. It's just the, it's the decision-making that the parties have to enter into and how badly they are uh, disarming themselves of all those primal instincts about anger, grief, fear, revenge, and, 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 and those things, and, and how much trust they have that what they're, what they're having is a true discussion about a meaningful difference in evaluation or a similar evaluation. So if they're able to um, trust the process that has produced an evaluation, then the decision-making, the third phase, is easier to come by. And keep in mind, that it's my understanding without having all the, all the stats at my disposal that before and after mediation came along it's still about the same somewhere right in the mid 
90s, 94, 95, 96% of all the cases get resolved without adjudication. What mediation has changed really is the timing of the negotiation and hopefully the elimination of a lot of the motion practice and the gymnastics that lead up to that, that case conference with the judge, you know, just for the trial. So the timing of, of negotiations, in fact, 25% of my cases are pre-suit matters. I've, I've assisted in the resolution of cases in eight figures without a single deposition ever, ever being taken. So it certainly has had an impact on timing and kind of how the dance goes and the, and the players in the dance and all that. But the end thing is kind of still the same. Very few cases out of 100 ever actually get tried. Yeah, because at the end of the day, most of the time the system is meant to function rationally, and it generally does. Generally does, yes. Except when it doesn't. Yes, uh, true. Now let's talk to the other group, the defense lawyers. What do they just not get? Like what is the piece that, that you're like, it's like you just don't understand this? Well, the irony about uh, many of the defense arguments is that they will attack the plaintiff on credibility grounds or they may have surveillance or they may, you know, I don't think they're going to be a good witness or they weren't credible or they weren't truthful with their doctor in regard to their history or whatever the case may be. But yet um, they have as many difficulties with their client and they just a lot of times just seem to think that the entire trial is based upon their ability to skewer the plaintiff in cross-examination or their expert without putting on a case. And the defendant or the defendant representative is just overlooking how exactly their story is going to play and who's going to tell the story. That's one thing. The other thing is is that um, going back to the, to the trial experience, they seem to... Um, um, believe that they can they can throw a bunch of things up in the hope that you know the Hail Mary pass may catch uh, or be complete um, just a small example of that is this whole concept of aggravation so we've done an IME and we don't think the plaintiff is hurt and by the way he saw a chiropractor for 20 years before our auto accident. Well, if he's not hurt, what difference does it make if he's seen a doctor before? If he is hurt and he had a surgery, well, where in the 20 years of chiropractic or palliative treatment was there a recommendation for surgery? And isn't the instruction for aggravation in Florida one of the most favorable to the plaintiff's bar of all the instructions. I mean, they're instructed that they buy the whole thing. So in the PI arena, which I don't do as often now as I did in my earlier days, it was just one of the things that were frustrating to me when I would hear about this past medical thing and then an IME saying he's not hurt, or on the plaintiff's side where they you know, promoting a lost wage claim and the guy's never filed a tax return. It, it seems like on both the plaintiff side and the defense side, it's like, like on the plaintiff side, it's because they haven't evaluated 
really evaluated things, they lose credibility in the process. Sure. And on the defense side, because they overly simplify things at times, they lose credibility in the process. What, what would you say to the younger lawyer who feels, if they were really, really honest, they don't feel like they walk in with a lot of credibility because they don't have as much history? They, they, they don't have as right. much history as a, as a trial lawyer. They don't have as much history with the opposing side. And if they were really honest, they feel very insecure. Okay. And they don't want to feel that way. Um, but they still want to be an effective advocate for their client in the mediation setting. What would you say to them? Do a cliche. You kind of have to know your lane. So once you step out, it can be readily apparent to everybody observing that you're just overstating, overstepping, or insecure. And so you can't acquire years of experience by wishing it. You just have to have it. And if you don't have it, then you go into the process with as much information as you can. Try to, try to analyze the difference between the story and the truth and, um, and be credible. Be credible with your rep and be credible with the other side. And sometimes, as you well know, um, even experienced seasoned senior partners in firms are just dealt a hand by their client or their client in, in interest in an insurance company uh, and are just forced to carry the party lines, so to speak. And that's what they've been hard to do. So. I, I feel like with the younger lawyers, it's uh, to be more factual, like less conclusions and opinions, but the more detailed they are factually telling the story is a little easier for me to hear. Yeah, um, I would agree with that. When, when you try to, to try to get, again, a cliche kind of over your skis and you advocate ahead of the facts, you probably will, will be in trouble. And the one that, that, I mean, this is my personal pet peeve, but it's whenever I hear from someone who has spent very little time in a courtroom, a jury's going to think or a jury's going to believe. And I'm looking at them like, you don't know what a jury's going to think and yeah. believe. You know, yeah. uh, that's my. It, it, it's a, a mediator is always challenged to try to um, mask perhaps the disbelief in the, in the presentation that they're hearing. Yes. Uh, I remember a specific example where it um i thought it was duly unfair that a young attorney was addressing the the um, plaintiff in a wrongful death case a surviving sister and it was hard for me to to hide the uh, the disbelief in the of the in the presentation senior partner mentioned something to me about that and i said I'm sorry. I, I just I can't believe he said that to the woman who he basically accused her of killing her sister, and or letting her die, and it's a a, a case that actually resolved. Hmm. But um, that senior attorney apparently felt like it was okay to say anything he wanted, and and uh, I just uh, learned from that time on that it, no matter what I hear, I probably have got to just uh, keep a straight face. That's that poker face. Emotion in the mediation process by the advocates. You mean the lawyers or the parties? Lawyers. Let's start with the lawyers. 
Well, there, there again, you would wonder um, what it is about their wiring or what is it about their experience or lack of experience that would cause them to take the um, most acrimonious route they can find to, <laughs> to make a point. And uh, you would just wonder what it is either about their, uh, their wiring, so to speak, or their experience that would lead them to believe that that would do their client any good. I find it to be generally ineffective. I mean, I, I find it when I see someone... Or a step back. Yeah, including yeah. for myself, by the way, when I have a moment where I become overly emotional, I, I find it doesn't help my cause and the other side it doesn't. And it's usually a distraction from getting where the process is working. Well, anytime that you're dealing with multiple of those, what I call those primal instincts, it's a harder day. I mean, you have to... If, if I have to kind of process and wade through uh, an, an emotional component from uh, an adjuster or a, a referring attorney or a client that really hasn't been either properly briefed on the defense side or the plaintiff side as to really what the reality of their case is, then it just uh, um, throws different layers into the process that you just have to, you know, pull apart and plow through and try to get to the most productive discussion you could have without that. Let's talk uh, opening statements. The uh, I've heard it, uh, the current debate on opening statements in mediation as uh, East Coast, West Coast mm-hmm. distinction. Um, I just returned from a, a conference with the American College of Civil Trial Mediators. I'm a member of that college. I've been, it's been going on since 1995, I believe very uh, select group of mediators and we get together every uh, every year and the last two years the the conference seems to center around three issues what do we do with so many mediators <laughs> you know taking our business uh, what can we do to avoid getting subpoenaed or not getting hired and what are we going to do about the the fluid uh, discussion that's taking place all over the country about the the scope and the dimension and the vibe of opening statements. Those three things are on the minds and, and take up the vast majority of the discussion at these gatherings that mediators have. Um, there's nothing they can do about the influx of mediators other than be a good mediator and accept the fact it's a part-time job. <laughs> Um, they, uh, to, in order to avoid a subpoena, make sure that you're not practicing law and you have a good sign-up sheet. And don't do anything that would in, uh, create an environment where a deal may unravel post-mediation because there wasn't an execution of a release. And the third one has to do with um, how much you should do in pre-mediation workup what should be the role of the mediator in drafting a settlement agreement. But to your point, um, the West Coast was California, Washington, Oregon. They haven't had, a, as um, my friend Stu Kogan, probably the go-to guy in Seattle says, they haven't done them in years. Um, but they started off with the, with the premise, and the pitch was really to the plaintiff's bar. And they said to the plaintiff's bar, you don't believe that the people coming to this mediation have full authority, do you? 
nah, it's a, it's a show up. They can tell us there's always somebody back home that's calling the shots. Well, if that's the case, then why are you waiting until the day of the mediation to make a presentation that's going to be heard by someone that yeah. doesn't have any authority? I've, I've only thought that at, at least 70% of the time. So why aren't you doing that ahead of time if you have compelling video clips of the defendant or a defendant or a witness? If you have um, surveillance, if you have... Um, whatever the aces are that you're what, holding Whatever in they hand. are, share it. So, so the, the, first, the first step in the process that led to no PowerPoint presentations out West was the requirement that everything gets sent to everybody. The mediator, so by the time you get to the mediation, everybody has seen everything. So therefore, the opening presentation would be nothing more than a repeat. And to an audience, it may or may not even matter, yes. right? And they bought into that. They said, you know what? We're going to agree to that. That doesn't mean that a plaintiff's attorney can't call a mediator before a mediation in a private conversation say, you know, Steve, you got all my stuff. I know you got uh, their stuff too. And, you know, it's, there's no new news here. We've been filing, you know, motions on this stuff for years. Uh, but, you know, I do have a problem with a client. And anything you can do to, um, you know, assist me and perhaps micromanaging the client in terms of their expectations. I don't expect you to give them any legal advice. I don't expect you to give them an opinion. But anything that you uh, feel they should be really apprised of in regard to the reality of the situation, you have my green light to do that because that's an issue. That doesn't have to appear in a summary. Likewise, with a, uh, with a, I've had a lawyer call me before in a, in a defense case says, my, uh, you know, I've got a problem. My adjuster insists on making a liability argument. I can't find my driver. My driver's gone. You know, I don't have a driver, but I got to make a, this liability argument. You know, on behalf of a red light, green light, and the truth of the I matter got no is, driver. I'm gonna yeah. yes. So so and, and just for clarity on that, so sure. Because I've I've heard uh, a discussion of this. There's no ethical prohibition from a mediator talking with either individual side outside the presence of the other side before mediation? No, the only thing you would, you would do would be to disclose the fact that there were private confidential discussions. So, it, so think of it like a pre-mediation caucus. Those are privileged and private, but yes. they know the caucus is going on. Yes. And the bill, the, the mediation bill would reflect you know, uh, pre-mediation conferences, telephone conferences, review of things. Uh, what both sides agreed that I should view, take a, a, a view of a scene. It was a, a premises thing, and they both agreed that I could go out there and take a look at it. I said, well, I'm not an arbitrator. I said, well, rather than describe it all or take a bunch of pictures, you know, we both agree that you can go out and look at it. When you, We're not going to be there, but you can go ahead and do that. So... Um, as long as there's disclosure about the event without disclosing the content, um, I'm at a point now because where I used to do 300 cases, I do about 100 now a year. I call on virtually all my cases ahead of time. Talk to the uh, both sides. Tell them that I'm talking to both sides. Anything you want to tell me. Encourage them in Florida. Would you consider, because I know we like this uh, for your eyes only, presentations, you know, summaries. 
encouraged them to consider the idea of exchanging those. Yes. I, I just did that this morning. I'm, uh, I've got this significant personal injury, wrongful death case coming up. Uh, had a lot of notoriety here in, in, in Orlando about, about the, uh, the decedent and the circumstance. And, well, I'm sending one to you, I'm sending one to the other side. And I said, well, why aren't you sending us the same thing? Oh, and, and then on top of that, he said, well, I don't think it'd be a good idea because of the emotional component that we have in opening presentation. I go, well, the, the beginning of not having any opening presentation is you sending them everything and then calling the other guy and getting him to do the same. So why don't you consider that if that is, is a part of this. So if the bar decides to be open with what they're sharing with the mediator and the other side, that goes a long way to creating more of a meet and greet at the opening because I still want everybody to realize there's humans, they're not in another room, there's people here, yes. this is who you're dealing with, this is who I'm going to be talking to on your behalf and on their behalf to you. That's known as the meet and greet. The, beyond that, it can be you know ten minutes of maybe new information, or maybe you know we just we're here to try to settle the case. We do want to make the point that we we have these motions, and you know you've got all that before. But it's like a one point, two point ten brief. Minutes. It's the ten yes. minute one. Yes. It's, and then and then it, you try to avoid you know that that hour and a half PowerPoint thing because it's already been done. I. Uh, I won't use any names, but um, well-known plaintiff's attorney in, in town um, representing a, uh, in a medical malpractice case and all set to go. And uh, the adjuster came in from Texas and said, mediator, time out. What are you doing? I'm not going to listen to that. We don't have these. I'm gonna I, hear think, it. I think I've experienced that same adjuster. <laughs> Ain't going to hear it again. And then so I'm mediating uh, somewhat just that. And I think, I think that's probably the case that got me calling ahead of time to find out everything I can other than whether or not they're going to do a deal, everything I can about the environment. Again, who are, who are the players? Getting to know who I'm playing with that day, a little bit about the hand, prior negotiations, problems. None of that has to appear. And, in those mutually uh, exchanged uh, submittals, uh, all that can be, you know, this, this is how we see the law, this is how we see the facts. I, I find it helpful before the mediation, just as an advocate, if I can engage with the other lawyer and say, what are your issues? Like, what are the issues y'all are focused on? Um, as a way of being sure, I'm not just talking to hear myself talk, I'm actually addressing the, the issues that... Um, they think are strong or, or, or they think we're weak or whatever they are. And then the other thing I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do more often is actually to try to engage. Are we doing opening statements? You know, do you want to do it? Is it important for your client to see you do that so that I'm not guessing and I have plenty of time to figure out what we're doing? If the lawyers start getting along and if the lawyers communicate more about the setup, of the mediation, you know, who's the mediator? What what are we trying to do? Are we going to have any negotiations ahead of time? Who's coming and all that? If they start getting along and do that, that creates a, a good day. And of course, the the deep, dark, dirty secret of the mediators is if, geez, if the lawyers start really getting along, y'all are we're, we're simply are out of business. <laughs> <laughs> I've tried the. Uh, I have tried the. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but they have this 
computer technology where you can engage uh, with an internet program with a carrier on negotiations and you don't know what their what their offer is and they don't know what your demand and it's have you have you heard anything about these? I, I've, I've heard about it just anecdotally, but no firsthand experience of that. And, and then if they're really. close, you find out you're within ten percent or something right. like that. It's absolutely mortifying process. By right. The way. I mean, it's it's for someone who I have some level of trust in technology, but I'm also uh, anything that the other side is recommending like that. It, it's a scary process. There is a um, a mediator. Um, I believe she's in Delaware, um, was joining the American College of Civil Trial Mediators and had filled out an application that she did a thousand cases a year. And I'm thinking, you know, 335 was my top number. And I remember that year, remember what that was like, two a day, the the nine o'clock bleeding into the one o'clock and conducting the back end and the front end of two mediations like simultaneously. I remember all that. And so I said, I got to call her. And so I did. I said, you know, tell me, tell me, break down the number for me. 30, 10.30, 12.30, 2.30, 5.30. No opening presentation. No back and forth negotiations. All she did was primarily two-party and workman's comp, two-party auto and workman's comp. State Farm, Allstate, Geico, Prudential, Progressive, Fireman's Fund, Liberty Mutual, auto owners, you have a pretty good idea what you're going to do. Tell them what you're going to do. Tell them why. And we'll save uh, the, the rest of the hour and a half for a little fourth quarter negotiation, maybe calling a lien holder. And they're lining up around the block for that model of mediation. Wow. $600 an hour, $300 a side. You're only going to get an hour and a half. And, and but the, I bet they're getting, give or take, the same results, just sure. more quickly. Sure. It's going to be a $3,500 case, you know, no matter what you do. And just, um, that's just the culture. And, you know, try to get another $500 out of that. And you might as well try to rob Fort Knox. And I, I remember describing that. I was a keynote speaker at one of the meetings we had. And I remember describing that, and you should have heard the uh, the comments, you know, well, that's not mediation, and, and well, I don't know what you perceive mediation to be. Does it have to be where you bill five hours of positional bargaining where they exchange numbers <laughs> that can't sell the case? Or can it be a, a frank discussion with a time limit about the evaluation? Yes. And, and, and so, and then, I, and then I said, you know, just do the math. She does a thousand cases a year, and she charges $600 a case. So, and I, I said, well, how are you guys doing with that? You know, how, how does that look for you? So, uh, along with your point, uh, the, the mediators that are practicing have to be mindful of the evolution of mediation. Magistrates are doing them. The, the uh, profession is now inundated with all kinds of new folks that are coming up with new ideas and how to mediate and what to do and create different models. I mean, that's free enterprise and entrepreneurial spirit at its finest you know they're just anything that intrigues you that you're seeing out there in the mediation world where you're thinking that has some traction that that has some potential the biggest thing uh over the i would say the past three or four years was uh for me was the focus on uh pre-mediation discussions yes 
before the meeting. It, it, nobody ever objects to getting a phone call about that. I've never heard anybody say, what are you doing calling me? I'll, you know, I'll talk to you at the mediation. They're more than happy to engage you, you know, and, and try to work you in regard to their side. In addition, you try and find out and you get to know a little bit about the hand as well. And so I'd like to think when I come to the actual to the meeting, that the scope and vibe and extent of opening presentations, what's been transmitted, what are the negotiations, who's coming, do I feel like, like they really have authority? It's probably not. You know, all of that is kind of resolved other than how are they going to relate to each other during that session and how are they going to negotiate and whether or not both parties will agree to a resolution on that day or is the hand such that uh, the day uh, to do business is probably a, um, the next day or the day after. I'm, I'm feeling like you're West Coast, not East Coast. You're a West Coast guy. Every case is different. Okay. Every case is different. And there are cases that uh, were particularly where both sides want to do a presentation. Then the next level is, well, can we restrict it? And I'll, I'll quote the professors, you know, anything beyond 45 minutes, it doesn't matter how old they are and what kind of break they need. Anything beyond 45 minutes, they're gone. Yes. Russell Troutman, the one-minute trial, if you take longer than a minute to describe your case, you're probably going to lose. I, I'll, I'll never for, I'll, I'll never forget doing a mediation. I was I was young, entering the medical malpractice world, and I did a mediation presentation with Chuck Shad from Jacksonville. I did an hour and 20 minutes. We get done, case settles the end of the day, and I said, Mr. Shad, that'll give you an idea of yeah. how I viewed him. I, I, I said, I really appreciate today. He said, son, can I tell you something? I said, absolutely. He said, we were there to pay you from the first second. You did not need to go that long. And it was it was a, it was a learning lesson for me of uh, on a case that's so that you believe is that good that you have a story you want to tell mm -hmm. for that long. You don't need to tell it for that long because I already know it. Mm -hmm. um, True. Never never forgot.